Welcome to the 224th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your stand-in host for today, Patrick Winograd. Uh, In this edition, our topics are an overview of my weekend predictions, our first look at college football this season with Week 0 stuff going on, and our weekly look at the MLB as well. So let's jump right in with a look back at my weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. Starting in MLB, where I went 3-1 and one in those predictions, and then in college football for the first time this season, I went 3-1. and one. So a very, very successful week. 6-2 and two overall, combined record of all time at 778 and 519, back to a 60% winning percentage, back above that little plateau there. Uh, I guess my next goal would be to get to 780 or sorry, not 780, to 800 wins before I get to 530 losses. Probably won't do it because I'm asking to go 22 and 11, but hey, I just went 6 and 2, so it's definitely doable. But uh, it would be very hard to do it, but it's an ambitious goal. We'll see what happens. Um, But going back to those predictions in itself, uh, the Braves took 2 of 3 from the Giants. Uh, The Braves jumped out, took the first 2 of the series. The Giants played a really good game uh, on Sunday, defensively especially. Um, to save getting swept, but didn't do very well, obviously, for themselves in terms of the wild card standings by losing 5-1 to one on Friday and then 7-3 to three on Saturday. The Braves kind of just doing their thing. They're getting uh, five runs, seven runs, and five runs in the three games in the series. Obviously, the Giants ended up winning 8-5 to five on Sunday, but the fact of the matter is the Braves' offense kept clicking, as it kind of always does. Uh, then you have the Guardians. They took 2-3 from the Blue Jays. Uh, this was a very interesting series. The, the last game of the series was ridiculous. Um, but it started off all the way back on Friday, where the Guardians took the first game of the series, um, doing so by beating the Blue Jays 5-2. to uh, Tanner Bybee had a good start in that game to uh, limit the Blue Jays, and, you know, they didn't do much offensively. Then they responded in Hyunjin Ryu's start. And by the way, he's been really good since coming back from the I.L., uh, for them, really surprised, or not surprised, because he has been a Cy Young contender in the past for my Dodgers, but uh, I, I guess surprised, though, to see how quickly he's been able to come back, readjust everything, since he's been out for a while and kind of has gotten re-injured over and over again. Um, so he's been doing well, though, readjusting to pitching on a consistent basis, and he's pitched well in those games. Five innings pitched, two earned runs given up, uh, both of those on solo home runs, so not really... Too much damage there, five strikeouts as well. Uh, and the Blue Jays won that game 8-3 to three on Saturday. And then on Sunday, it's a really, really crazy game. Not necessarily the best umpires in the game. Um, through the fourth inning, Noah Syndergaard was, you could say, pitching well because he had only given up one hit on the day. But the problem was that hit was after a walk, uh, and that hit was a home run. So they were down 2 to nothing in the first. The Guardians ended up taking a 4-2 to two lead, and then... The second hit he gave up in the game after a missed uh, strike three call that ended up being called a ball was another homer to George Springer. So at that point, he'd only given up two run, two hits, but he'd also given up three runs in four innings, so not very, not a very good outing there. And then he gave up another homer to Davis Schneider, and in the end, well, hate to break it to him, but uh, he is not going to be pitching for Cleveland anymore. He was DFA'd after the game, uh, which... Was something that Dodgers fans were clamoring for them to do before that anyway, and now all of a sudden that Ahmed Rosario trade is looking very, very lopsided. Um, but regardless, the Guardians went on to actually come back 
um, from the deficit that they were eventually in, although they weren't in a deficit for very long at any point in this game. Uh, they were down 5-4 to four after that Schneider home run. Uh, Andres Jimenez had a two-run double to go up 6-5, to five, and then Varsho equalized it at 6. And then in the 11th inning, uh, the Guardians got a two-run double from Cole Calhoun and a two-run home run from Ramon Laureano to go up 10-6, to six, and then the Blue Jays only pushed across one run in the 11th, and in the end, they lost by three. They lost 10-7 to seven in 11 innings. Uh, that was the only series I lost this week, though, so I, I was very satisfied with that. Um, and then the Brewers, they swept the Padres. They won the first game of the series 7-3 to three. on Saturday. They won 5-4, to four, and then today they won 10-6. to six. Uh, Just not really a close series, to be quite honest, just in all aspects of it. And then there was the most uh, storybook series of the weekend, let's just say. Mookie Betts return to Boston uh, on Friday. He got a standing ovation before the game uh, in the first inning. I believe he got a hit and he got a... I, I believe he... Actually, no, he popped out. Excuse me. Um, and then, you know, the Dodgers... Uh, Alex, actually, Alex Verdugo had pretty big impact on the series. He led off three straight games of the home run, although one of those was the last game in the Red Sox prior series before playing the Dodgers, but he did lead off the first two games of the series with home runs. Uh, Boston was up 3 to nothing on the Dodgers before the Dodgers really started getting into the game. Um, then it looked like you know it was just maybe going to be a loss for L.A. because in the top of the third inning, when uh, Cutter Crawford was looking for a shutout inning, or shutdown inning, I should say, Miguel Rojas hit a single to center before the top of the order, and that's when you think, okay, this is where the Dodgers do some of their damage with one, two, three coming up, but both Mookie and Freddie Freeman struck out. Um, and then Will Smith also struck out. So Cutter Crawford struck out the side after the Rojas single. And all of a sudden it doesn't really feel like the Dodgers have a chance in this one, but Lance Lynn held it down, uh, ended up pitching all the way through the fifth inning. And so did Cutter Crawford. But then in the, in the sixth inning, the Dodgers got their guys back up at the top of the order. Mookie Betts hit a double. Freddie Freeman hit a single. Uh, they pulled Cutter Crawford, and then Nick Pavetta came in, but he didn't do much better. Uh, Will Smith hit a double that sent Freddie Freeman to third. Max Muncy had a productive out that scored Freddie Freeman. And then with two outs, Kike Hernandez had a single that put it at a 3-3 three to three tie. And then it was Dodgers from there. Um, the bottom of the order again. Coming through big off of Pavetta, Michael Bush got a walk, and then Mookie Betts walked, and Freeman hit a double to take the lead 4-3, to three. and then Muncy later in the inning got a double, scored two runs, Dodgers went up 6-3, to three. Uh, they won that game 7-4 to four eventually, and then Mookie really started to make his impact um, in the second game of the series. Um, he had one RBI, but he was 3-6 for six on the day. The Dodgers had a chance, Mookie with bases loaded and two outs, Hit the ball very, very hard. Got it all the way to the warning track, but it was caught. Um, that would have tied the game if it had gotten down, probably, um, with fast runners on the base. And obviously, if it had gone over the wall, it would have given the Dodgers the lead. But there were some controversial calls in this game. I'm not going into it too much, but the Red Sox did win that game 8-5. to And then 7-4, to the Dodgers won the final game. Mookie Betts definitely had a big impact on this game, going 3-5 for five with 3 RBI. Led off the game with a single. Uh, he and Freddie Freeman were stranded, though, after having second and third and no one out. This game didn't have offense for a while. Uh, no runs until the top of the fourth inning when James Outman hit a, hit a solo homer. Um, and then, really, still no runs for a while, despite the fact that it was 7-4 to four in the end. Uh, Max Muncy had a single to score Freeman in the fifth, but all the scoring really started in the sixth. 
Uh, Mookie Betts hit a two-run homer over the Monster to make it four to nothing, and then Tristan Casas halved the lead by hitting a two-run homer of his own that was a very monster and uh, wind-aided, wind-aided homer. Um, Dodgers answered back, though, made it 5-2, to two, eventually made it 7-2 to two before the Red Sox went back-to-back to, back to start the bottom of the eighth, and the Dodgers, I guess, bulk guy, you could say, for the day, Gavin Stone, had to be pulled. Uh, but then everything else from there was uh, pretty standard. Nobody else really got on base. Actually, nobody got on base except for Reese McGuire hitting a single. And the game was over, and the Dodgers had won the game and the series 7-4. Uh, and then in college football, I'm not going to go game by game because they're really the only games we have to talk about this weekend. Um, not really. They, they are the only games we have to talk about. Um, but Jacksonville State beat UTEP. That one I predicted correctly. UMass beat New Mexico State. I got that one wrong. Then the last two, San Diego State beat Ohio 20-13. Uh, oops, I said the score on that one. Well, I'll go back to it in a second. Um, and Louisiana Tech beat FIU. I got both of those correct, so a pretty good weekend to start off in college football. I will also say that if you looked at my overall predictions, I was 6-1 and one over the weekend, but obviously didn't have all those games in the weekend predictions as official predictions, and reason being is because I'm not going to track every single game throughout the entire season, despite the fact that they're there. I don't need 100 and, I don't know, 60 or so games going into my record every single weekend. Very, very hard to track, so I don't want to do that, uh, but... Regardless, a good week for me and my predictions. Very happy with my results. And with that, I will move on to our first weekly recap of college football of the season. Um, we will be a full squad for actual week one, but, you know, it's week zero, so figured, you know, we could take a little break. Randy could take a little break. Of course, that's a joke, but uh, that that's not the reason why. But, yes, this is just me for today, but you know what? Week one, that's the important week anyway. Much better matchups, but... You know, we had two ranked teams in play in Week 0, starting with USC, the number 6 team in the country, who, of course, as I complained about, obviously, this is the only game of the day I didn't watch, and it was not out of my own volition. 56-28, uh, to 28, they won that game. Caleb Williams was pretty good in this game. It took USC a little bit to get on, uh, I guess, on board offensively. I don't really know if that's the right word to use. Maybe in sync. I don't know. But, you know, they, they, they struggled a little bit in the first quarter. It took them a while to score. Um, but then once they had scored, uh, San Jose State actually had tied it 7-7, and USC did, though, get a 76-yard touchdown pass. This one caught by Taj Washington to make it 14-7, but the fact of the matter is it was 7-7 with 10 minutes left in the second quarter, so that's not exactly as dominant as USC expected to be, but then they opened it up later. It was a 21-14 lead at the half, but USC quickly in the third quarter scored two touchdowns um, in a row. And then after San Jose State responded to make it 35-21, to USC responded with a kick return touchdown and then scored two more unanswered after that to make it 56-21. to And San Jose State got another one at the end of the game to make it 56-28. to But overall, Caleb Williams starts off his campaign at, 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 sorry, defending his Heisman champ, his Heisman trophy by potentially repeating with an 18-25 of day with 278 yards and four touchdowns. Doing what is expected of him, I would argue, um, that's pretty pretty standard for him, honestly. That's kind of all I can say about it. Not going to say it was anything ridiculous. Not going to say it was anything out of the ordinary, but it definitely wasn't a pedestrian game. Four touchdowns is nothing to uh, scoff at. And San Jose State's not necessarily a terrible team. It's not like they were playing one of the worst teams in FBS or an, FBS or an FCS team. They were playing a pretty good D1 team. Uh, but then again... 
That's supposed to be the case for Notre Dame as well. They were playing Navy in Dublin, but it did not go well for Navy at all. Some miscues, I think, were really the story for them. They had some early miscues when they should have been probably contending in this game to actually make make it a close game. And unfortunately, when things didn't go right for them, they didn't really have much of a response. That's kind of the problem with that triple option offense. When a team is able to just be just be dominant in the trenches against you, you really can't go anywhere with that. Uh, they tried their best, but 2.7 yards per carry is not the Navy way. That is not going to be enough. Uh, 47 carries for 128 yards. They had a fourth down where two receivers ran into each other that, you know, they could have made the game. I think it was 14 to nothing at that point, and that would have made it 14 to 7 if they scored a touchdown on that drive. They probably could have had a touchdown on that drive. Actually, no, it would have made it 7 to 7 if they had scored instead. Notre Dame took the ball, scored a touchdown. Navy punted again. Uh, Notre Dame scored a touchdown again. And then Navy missed a field goal down 21 to nothing, and Notre Dame scored again to make it four drives, four touchdowns for Notre Dame. Meanwhile, Navy had a turnover on downs and a missed field goal, and they had one fewer possession than Notre Dame did in the half. So just not good at all. Um, not just not really what you're looking for. And uh, Notre Dame actually score, had a scoring chance, I could say, on every single one of their drives in this game. Ended up winning 42-3. to Probably would have been a lot worse had it not been against a team like Navy who just runs the clock with the triple option. Because even when they punt, they take two and a half minutes on their drives. Notre Dame probably had, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I'm going to go look at the time of possession because I really feel like Notre Dame might have been at a disadvantage. Yeah, Navy had the ball for 33 minutes and 14 seconds compared to Notre Dame at 26 minutes and 46 seconds. But Notre Dame outgained Navy by 270 yards because, obviously, they went through the air, they went quicker, and even on the ground they were better. Uh, played a really clean game, only one 10-yard penalty in the entire game. I believe that's a hold. And other than that, it was a good weekend for Notre Dame. I mean, I, I think they showed out pretty well. Um, I don't think they're any better than I thought they were, I guess I would say. is well, I, I guess I can't really say anything else about it. I mean, they, they, they were projected for, you know, nine or so wins, depending on where you look, depending on if you're looking at odds, whatever. Um, I had them at 10, but the fact of the matter is their schedule is just tough. I mean, they play USC, who's a top six team. They play Ohio State, who's a top five team. So, I, I mean, you, if you say that they're a top five team themselves, they still might lose both of those games. There have been plenty of top five teams that have two losses to other top five teams or even other top 10 or 15 teams. Uh, you know, that's just how it works. So, it wouldn't be surprising if this was really just a, an amazing coming out party for Notre Dame and they still go 10-2 and two is, I guess, what I'm trying to say there. I, I thought they looked really good, um, and I thought that if I'm erring on the side of will I be right in terms of having them at 10 where most computers and projections have the more 8-ish, 9-win range because of those tough ACC games than those games against USC and, and Ohio State, I would say I'm closer right now based on what I saw. I would favor them more as a 10-win team than a 9-win team at this point, but... It's still so early, and it's too hard to tell. You just never know. Uh, but that being said, I'll move on to the less important in the national scope of things, um, but still important games. Starting with Jacksonville State, they got their first FBS win as a program by beating UTEP 17-14. This was a game that I was happy I got right, predicting-wise, because UTEP was actually the favorite heading into the game. Uh, but, you know, I struggled with it in my preseason predictions, and I decided to just... Stay with what I had before. UTEP was a one-and-a-half-point favorite on the road, but Jacksonville State was able to win this game. Um, they 
did it really by just starting off with the lead. Honestly, that's pretty much all it was. They started off with a field goal, had a few important fourth down stops uh, throughout the game, but especially early in the game. They were up 10 to nothing at the beginning of the second quarter, and it looked like UTEP was really out of it. UTEP eventually actually got a rushing touchdown with no time left on the clock in the second quarter. So very, very dangerous to even run a play in that scenario, but they did, and they, they got rewarded for it. So it was 10 to 7 at the half, but Jacksonville State came out, made it 17 to 7 in the middle of the third quarter, and it took UTEP until the kind of early middle part of the fourth quarter to make it 17 to 14, and they didn't do anything from then on. So Jacksonville State won the game 17 to 14. Then you have the biggest shootout of the day UMass and New Mexico State. It didn't look like it was going to be like that for a while, though. Uh, it went into the half as a 10 to 10 game. So a very, very close game. Um, New Mexico State had a rough first few possessions on offense, and then all of a sudden, while the commentators were talking about figuring out the Don Brown defense, uh, New Mexico State's Monte Watkins broke off an 80-yard touchdown run, which I don't really think that's a defensive scheme thing. I think there were obviously some things that were uh, messed up on that play for them, but at the same time, it's just a little bit ironic. Um, and then ended up going into the halftime, like I said, tied 10-10. Uh, UMass got a field goal to make it 13-10 to 10 in the middle of the third quarter, and then all of the rest of the scoring, yes, all the rest of the scoring to make it 41-30 from 13-10. to 10. Yes, every single score happened in the fourth quarter. Um, UMass was up 20-10 to 10 after a touchdown run. Then New Mexico State made it 20-17. to 17. Then UMass made it 27-17, to 17, and while New Mexico State went to drive back down the field. There was a 55-yard pick six that really puts the final nail in the coffin, as UMass would, obviously, if they were defending um, at that point. Mexico State scores a touchdown. You're talking about a three-point game with, you know, six or five-ish minutes left. Now, all of a sudden, you're talking about a 34-17 to game with seven minutes left. Uh, so a big, big, big swing there. And then, you know, they traded touchdowns for the rest of the game, but that didn't really matter and ended up being 41-30. to UMass won. Uh, then you had San Diego State and Ohio, a really, really slow-paced game. I don't have much to say about this one. Uh, CJ Her- Curtis Rourke was in this game, but uh, I believe he got injured uh, and was not... I, I don't think he actually finished... The- he did not finish the game. I know that for a fact, but I, I think he was injured um, in the middle of the game. CJ Harrison instead became the quarterback. Um, and he didn't have his greatest day uh, behind under center for Ohio. He threw, sorry, C.J. Harris. Um, he threw three interceptions on 18 of 41 passing, not very strong at all. And with the passing game struggling a lot, San Diego State able to kind of anchor down on Bangura and the run game for Ohio that is really kind of the anchor of the team. Uh, and San Diego State played their own little Slow-paced game. Jalen Maiden had a rough start to the game, but ended up 17 of 27 for 164 yards and two touchdowns. Most important thing, he did not turn the ball over. On offense, they ran for 4.7 yards per carry. Um, and eventually, that was enough to win 20 to 13. Then, you have Louisiana Tech at FIU and Vanderbilt at Hawaii. Both of these games ended very similarly, but not quite the same. Uh, FIU could not throw the ball in this game whatsoever. They were all ground game-based. Uh, they were shredding Louisiana Tech at the beginning of the game. Uh, their first, their I mean, their plays were, their their first drive was incomplete pass, 8-yard run, 67-yard touchdown run. Um, so, I mean, that's just, can't really say much about that. And then 
Uh, they gave FIU a short field on an interception and also gave them an even shorter field by committing a personal foul to give them a first down at Louisiana Tech's 37. Mind you, the game at this point is still 7 and nothing FIU uh, in the first quarter. FIU ran a little bit more, and then on a pass, they committed pass interference. Ball was placed at the 6-yard line, and Louisiana Tech gave up a 6-yard touchdown run to make it 14 to nothing. Um, from then on, though, it was really all Louisiana Tech. It was just kind of a matter of could they, did they have enough time left to work themselves back into the game uh, if their offense kept settling for field goals, which, spoiler alert, it did. Very reminiscent of kind of Michigan-Illinois last year, honestly, to me. But they kicked a field goal at the beginning of the second quarter. Um, FIU responded, actually, by going down the field. A bunch of runs, uh, actually all runs, no, no completed passes on this whole drive, just one thrown pass, and it was incomplete. And they kicked a 45-yard field goal to make it 17-3. to And then that was with 10 minutes left in the first half. And then it really felt like things had gone south for Louisiana Tech when they missed a field goal at the end of a long drive. Um, a 37-yard field goal, so nothing really hard. But then their defense really, really anchored down. Uh, forced a three and out, scored a touchdown on one play after that. Forced another three and out, and they got a field goal at the end of the half. So that meant that in the end, it was 17-10 to 10 at the half. Um, then on the first, or sorry, 17 to 13 um, at the end of that drive. And then, unfortunately for Louisiana Tech, they fumbled on their first drive out of the half with the chance to take the lead. Um, but they kept going after that. Um, they, they, they took that 17 to 13 lead and they made sure that it wasn't going to hold them down. These teams traded punts a little bit. And then um, FIU gave them. Gave Louisiana Tech the ball at the 45-yard line. They still couldn't convert for a touchdown as they ended up kicking a field goal after a few first downs. Only a 7-play, 16-yard drive um, for Louisiana Tech. They kick a field goal. They force another punt, but then they missed another field goal. And that's when it really felt like they probably wouldn't win the game. But then all of a sudden, FIU punts one more time. Uh, Louisiana Tech gets the ball with two and a half minutes left. They run the two-minute drill successfully. Finally don't have to settle for a field goal. Get that touchdown and FIU's quarterback, I mean, look, it just wasn't enough to get it done. Grayson James was 5 of 14 for four yards and an interception in the entire game. Just not nearly enough. Uh, you cannot be that one-dimensional against any team in FBS and expect to win. And at the end of the game, when he had to make the two-minute drill, he threw an interception. So that wasn't very surprising, but at the same time, just can't be that one-dimensional. Then, honestly... I'm surprised Hawaii gave Vanderbilt that much of a fight. I give them credit for staying in this game. They had an opportunity at the end of the game to have a two-minute drill to win it, but um, they just couldn't quite get it done. Braden Schrager, though, is looking like a good quarterback so far. He was 27 of 35, 351 yards, and three touchdowns in this game. He did throw two picks, but at the same time, they my I mean Miami, Hawaii was airing the ball out against Vanderbilt. And it did not look like a defense that was capable of holding any SEC passing offense down the way that they let Braden Schrager and the Hawaii receivers kind of dice them up. I mean, I just don't know how you're going to stop all the quarterbacks in the SEC, K.J. Jefferson, uh, Joe Milton, even just the fact that they're all dual threats. I don't know how you stop that when you're giving up 28 to Hawaii on uh, at home. Vandy looks like they're heading for another rough season, I guess, is the point I'm going for, despite the fact that they won this game, uh, which was, I believe, delayed by lightning um, but look Vandy won that's what's important for them but at the same time they were outgained by 
by Hawaii by 90 by 90 yards. So and by more first downs and Hawaii had more uh of possession. So I just Vandy just doesn't really look good. They were favored by 19 in this game or 17 in this game, excuse me, and uh they didn't look like a team that should have been favored by 17. Looked more like a team that should have been favored by 7 or maybe one and a half points. Um but in the end they got their win. That is what important. That is what is important, excuse me. Um and now Speaking of important, we will turn to MLB where we will talk about the playoff race, especially starting in the AL East and moving on through the rest of the American League and the rest of the league eventually with a shortened MLB recap, obviously, because of the fact that, well, uh, it's football season, so that takes a little bit now. Um, But starting off in the AL East, it is the Baltimore Orioles who are still in the lead there. Uh, Their lead on the rest of the division is now double digits on everybody, except for the fact that Tampa Bay is only two games back. Eight and two in their last ten, starting to play like the Rays at the beginning of the season once again. Only one back in the win column from Baltimore. Uh, Just two games back with a much better run differential. Baltimore seven and three in their last ten, though, so no slouches either. Um, They won two of three from the Rockies, but could not take the whole series and played some close games there, although they do play the White Sox next, so not getting any harder for them. Meanwhile, the Rays took two of three from the Yankees after sweeping the Rockies earlier in the week. They move on to take on the Marlins, which might be an easy series for them, but the fact of the matter is Miami is still trying to compete for a playoff spot, so it really shouldn't be easy on paper. Um, but we'll see what happens with that series. Then you have Toronto. They are at 71-60, and 10.5 back of Baltimore. Most importantly, though, Toronto, after all this time, actually did fall out of the wild card. They are two and a half games back. Of two AL West teams, but not who you think it is. It's Houston and Texas who are tied for the second wildcard spot now. And I should have mentioned Tampa Bay six up on those two teams. So very, very safe in terms of getting a playoff spot. Just not necessarily safe in terms of the division or making a run at the division at all. Um, We'll see if the Orioles pull away with it. We'll see if the Rays make the run, but who knows now. But Toronto, for now, they are two and a half games out of a playoff spot. Um, due to the run made by Seattle recently that I will get on with later. And speaking of teams the AL East, obviously this division we're in, you have the Boston Red Sox there at 69-62, and 62, four and a half games back in those wildcard standings, 12 and a half back in the division. Uh, it doesn't really look like they're going to be able to just stay afloat, considering how well Tampa Bay, Texas, Houston, and Toronto, and also Seattle are playing right now. I just don't see how they stay in the race given those teams' level of play, and given the fact that you look at their schedule, um, they play the Astros again. They did take two of three from the Astros last week, though, so they are they are holding their own in the series they are playing. Or, sorry, that, that series was a, was a split. I didn't see the first game. Um, but they did win 17-1 to in the final game, so definitely won that series on run differential. Um, but they play the Astros again, this time in Fenway, uh, to end August. And then, yeah, they have the Royals at the beginning of August, but then or at the beginning of September, but uh, they get to play their divisional teams, and that doesn't look so good because that means they play six in a row against the Rays and the Orioles. They play four against their hated rivals, the Yankees, and then six against the Blue Jays and Rangers before closing out the series with three against the White Sox, two against the Rays, and three against the Orioles. They just have too many games against the division leaders, in my opinion, to be able to catch up to, A, those division leaders themselves, and B, the other teams that are in the wild card they will be playing that will be taking those series just as seriously as they do not necessarily resting players for the playoffs um, or looking ahead at all. So I don't really see how the Red Sox get back into it at four and a half back. 
Definitely don't see how the Yankees get into it at 11 back in the wild card now that they are 62 and 68, 2 and 8 in their last 10. Just terrible um, from the Yankees. I mean, I talked about the Yankees too much last week. I don't like talking about only the big market teams, so I'm going to uh, ignore them for the rest of the podcast. They are just floating down there, 19 games back in the division, 11 games back in the wild card. And instead, I'm going to move on to the AL Central, where you have the Minnesota Twins at 68 and 63 leading the way. Uh, their playoff odds now at 96% because they have a six-game lead on Cleveland after Cleveland, uh, although they took that weekend series from the Blue Jays, they had lost two of three to the Dodgers earlier in the week, and they had lost three of four to the Tigers uh, last weekend. So not looking too good for them. Just DFA Noah Syndergaard, who was pitching in their rotation for a few games now, um, it doesn't look very good for them. Honestly, now they're in a fight for second place. With Detroit, who is 59 and 71, they're five and five in their last ten. They still have point a 0.4 percent chance to make the playoffs. Hey, who knows? Um, I know they're not going to make it. Um, but look, in terms of the rest of, the, of this division, there are just no. There's nothing to talk about. I mean, everybody has a minus 116 run differential or worse outside of Cleveland, um, and all these teams are at least six and a half, six back of the Twins. And even the Guardians just feel like such a long shot at this point. There's only a month left. In the, it's, August 27th, it's August 28th. I mean, there's not really much time to make up six games in, in, in the standings. That's one game every five days for the rest of the season. That's just not going to happen. So um, I just don't see it happening. The Twins definitely have games left against DZ teams because their division is terrible. And while the Guardians are in that division, uh, the Twins do play six games against the Guardians at the end of the season uh, in terms of their last series in August and then their first or second series, I believe, in September. But at the same time, the Twins win maybe two of those games, and I think the Guardians get to four back, and that's still not enough because the Twins end the, se- end the season with five games against the A's and the Rockies. So good luck catching up to that. Um, and they also have a series series thrown in there with the Mets and also four against the White Sox. So pretty easy schedule for the Twins um, at the end of the season, and they already have that lead, whereas the Guardians... Still have, obviously, those six games against the Twins. And they still have games against the Rays. And they have games against both the Giants and the Rangers. Um, Although, I should have mentioned the Twins have more games against the Rangers as well. But I believe that uh, the Twins actually won that series over the weekend. Yeah, they won three or four from the Rangers already. So they're not really afraid of them. Um, But, look, like I said, not much more to talk about in this division. I will say the White Sox are 52-79. and That's 16 games back, and the Royals don't have the worst record in MLB. They're not mathematically eliminated yet, technically. Um, they're 41-91. and But in the AL West, we do have a team mathematically eliminated. That is the A's at 38-93. and They're 36 and a half games back in the division. First team eliminated this year. They deserve it. Um, but that's not the story in this division. The story in this division... It's the Seattle Mariners. They have been on an absolute tear since the All-Star break. And all of a sudden, Seattle leads the division in the AL West for the first time since 2002. Um, It is ridiculous. It has been that long. I mean, it's ridiculous that it has been that long. But it's also ridiculous um, that they've managed to rally and get all the way here. Or sorry, not 2002. 2003, excuse me. Um, But look, the Rangers... They had a seven and a half game lead on Seattle 12 days ago on August 15th or 12 season games days ago, I guess you could say, um, because it is the 28th. But the Mariners have come storming back 
while Texas is 1-9 in their last 10, the Mariners are 9-1, and and all of a sudden, they are probably going to win the division. They now have the second-highest playoff odds in the division, behind Houston by 0.6%. Uh, but let's start talking about the records here. Seattle is 74-56. and uh, Then you have Texas, who's 73-57. and They are, like I said, 1-9 in their last 10. Only have a 65% chance to make the playoffs at this point, just barely above Toronto. Actually, the combined chances of Toronto and Boston are actually equal to that of the Texas Rangers, pretty much, uh, give or take a few uh, decimal points of a percentile. Then you have Houston, they're 74 and 58. Uh, whatever ESPN's using to do playoff predictors actually has them as the highest chance in the division. I can see why, just because it's the Astros. Um, I mean, although I don't think a computer should be judging off reputation like that, but I would still say I agree that the Astros are probably going to be in the playoffs. But uh, then again, one series or two could go wrong, and all of a sudden that could be Toronto's spot to take. Um, so it's very interesting. But those two teams tied with each other for second place in this division and also for the second wild card spot. Six back of the Rays. Definitely still looking at winning the division, obviously, because there's only one game separating those three teams. Um, the Mariners, the Rangers, and the Astros, obviously. And then you have the Angels. They're 63-68. and 68, The same record, or sorry, one game a half game better than the New York Yankees. They're 11 and a half back in the division, and they are 10 and a half back in the wild card. And Shohei Otani has torn his UCL, so he will not be pitching for the rest of the season, but he is apparently supposed to stay hitting. We will see what happens with that. Maybe he gets shut down towards the end um, with, you know, free agency looming. You don't want to injure himself, even. He, doesn't, he shouldn't want to injure himself any further. Probably his agent might tell him to, you know. Keep it on the lowdown, make sure that he doesn't end up re-injuring something or making his elbow injury worse, whatever you want, however you want to phrase it, or even just getting injured in general uh, at the end of a losing season. But we'll see what happens there. Uh, but that's all I have for the American League. I already talked about the A's, so I'll move on to the National League, where the other team with an A as their logo, although this one doesn't have an apostrophe in it, uh, the Braves, they are 84-45, and 45, 12.5 ahead of Philadelphia. As we know, there are two division races here in the NL that are completely out of the question in terms of who's going to win, and they're not really worth talking about. Obviously, that being the Braves and the Dodgers. Braves, best run differential in baseball at plus 219. They are still hitting the cover off the baseball. Uh, Texas is only 20 runs behind them. Tampa Bay is 40 or so behind, but outside of those two, um, and the Dodgers, who, excuse me, are also 20 behind, um, there are four clubs who have 700 runs scored on the year. They are setting the table in terms of, or setting the tone in terms of the best offense in the league, and their pitching staff is really good as well. That is how you get to that run differential. Uh, but what's more important in this division are the teams chasing the wild card. That is the Philadelphia Phillies leading the wild card at 72 and 58, despite being 12 and a half back of the division. The teams in the NL West have kind of been a little bit going through rough patches in the recent weeks. So the Phillies have now seized control of that first wild card spot. Doesn't really look like anybody's challenging them for it. They're seven and three in their last ten. They are three and a half up on Arizona, who is currently in the third wild card spot, and we'll get to that later. Then you have Miami. They are really starting to fade in this race. Just three and seven in their last ten, and they are sixty-six and sixty-five on the season. Um, I would view San Diego. Sorry, I would view Washington, who is tied with San Diego. That's really ironic, given the Juan Soto trade. But yes, it's true. Um, I would say those teams are the teams who are clearly out of it at eight games or nine games out at this point. San Diego and Washington both eight games out. 
although that's a little bit of NL West talk. But uh, Washington has climbed ahead of the Mets, though, at 60-71. and 71. Uh, The Mets are there. Washington at 61-70, and 70, so just one game ahead. But still, 7-3 and three in their last 10. Washington could be pretty good next year, honestly. I, I don't think they're going to be division winner, but I could see them having kind of a Cincinnati Reds-esque season by calling up some more prospects um, that, you know, who knows how much of an impact they might have. But I could see it happening where those guys kind of contribute and they have a little bit of a midseason push and might end up as a playoff team. At least they're interesting and competitive. Um, but for now, they won't be in the playoffs this year. Um, although it looks like the Phillies will be, and in terms of the rest of the division, it's really just uh, the Mets in last, and uh, doesn't really look like they're going to get three playoff teams this year. I think it will just be Atlanta and Philadelphia. But speaking of a division that could get three playoff teams, let's go to the NL Central, where the Brewers now lead the division after winning eight games in a row, eight and two in their last ten. Uh, they are four games up on the Chicago Cubs, who are still doing pretty well themselves, seven and three in their last ten. Uh, those two will play each other for three games, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So that'll be interesting. And then the Cubs actually will go on to play the third place Reds, who are six games back of the Brewers at 68 and 64. They're, they, unfortunately, though, are 5-5 five and five in their last 10. So it looks like that exciting team, that exciting run that was made, might not come to fruition in terms of a playoff spot. Chicago is a half game up on Arizona for that final wild card spot. But Cincinnati is tied with San Francisco at a game and a half back of Arizona for that final spot. Will be tough to see if they can claim that or not. And then at the bottom of the division, of course, anchoring as always, are the Pirates at 15 and a half games back at 58 and 73, uh, and the Cardinals, who are 17 and a half games back at 56 and 75, which brings us to the final division, the NL West, the second least interesting race, uh, although it's only been that way recently. It was a close race just a few weeks ago. But both Arizona and San Francisco now have negative run differentials. Actually, only the Padres have a positive run differential in this division, other than the Dodgers, who, of course, are 80 and 49 on the season. Uh, they are one of the four teams that so far has 80 wins, um, joining the Braves, the Orioles, and the Rays. Uh, but the best record out of those, except for the Orioles and the Braves, not very far behind the Orioles, though. But the Dodgers are 7-3 and three in their last 10. They've really wrapped up this division. I think the magic number is under 30 at this point, which is pretty ridiculous to say in August, given where the Dodgers were at certain points in the season, three or four games back of Arizona, but never quite out of it at all. And now all of a sudden, everybody else is out of it. Um, but this division is very important in the wild card. And speaking of Arizona, you know, the tone was that they had a really disappointing fall off in the middle of the season. But I have said all along that I thought that Arizona was at least going to um, come back down to earth when they were really, really good and become a fringe playoff contender. And then when they were really, really bad, I thought, you know, they're fading from the race and they've plummeted really hard, but there's still enough in that team that they should at least make it competitive. Now they've more than made it competitive. I had lost faith that they were going to make the playoffs maybe two weeks ago, but all of a sudden, 8-2 and two in their last 10, and with the Giants going 3-7 and seven in their last 10, Miami going 3-7 and seven in their last 10, Cincinnati only at 5-5, five and five, Arizona's back in the playoff spot all of a sudden that quickly. Um, it's really the teams who have been hot as of recently, Philly, Chicago, and Arizona, who are in those wild card spots, and that's how it should be. The teams who are playing the best at the end of the season win the close race. Uh, it looks like Arizona might be a part of that group. We will see what happens, but they still do have a one-and-a-half game advantage over those Giants, who, like I said, are 3-7 and seven in their last 10, have inherited a very tough part of their schedule, a.k.a. they played the Braves twice in a week. Um, they did take two games from the Braves over those six games, but they also only took one from the Phillies, so in the end, do the math, 
They went 3-6 and six against those teams from the NL East, and they lost their last game of the series against the Rays before that, and before that they were playing the Rangers. So, tough series for the Giants, uh, but they lost those series to the Rangers, the Rays, the Braves, the Phillies, and then the Braves again. So that's five series lost in a row. Now they have a tough wild card series. Um, or sorry, not tough wild card series, but tough series between wild card contenders with the Reds at home. Uh, and if the Reds can come out on fire like they did the last time they played the Giants, the Giants are going to be losing six series in a row. But if the Giants come out doing well, then all of a sudden that won't be the case. Uh, this is a pivotal series, though, because both of those teams are one and a half games back of Arizona for that final wild card spot. And this is the week, if you want to make up some ground on Arizona, that you should do it because Arizona plays the Dodgers um, in L.A. And then after that, guess what? Doesn't get any easier. They play the Orioles. So they play the second and third best records this week after the Diamondbacks just wrapped up a series where they took three of four, by the way, um, from the Reds. So the Reds kind of played themselves out of it in the beginning of the week, but all of a sudden they're going to have another opportunity to play themselves back into the race by beating up on the Giants. Whoever takes two of three in that series will probably end the week a, a half game back of the Diamondbacks. or sorry, Yeah, the, the week itself. But then heading into the weekend, they might have a chance to make up even more games as uh, San Francisco plays the Padres while Arizona is playing the Orioles. And Cincinnati will uh, be playing the Cubs. So maybe that opportunity isn't as good for them than they play the Mariners after. So maybe the Reds not having such great opportunity with that schedule. But we shall see what happens there. Um, in the rest of the division, you have the Padres, like I said, 61-79 and 79 games back in the wild card, 20 back in the division, and then the Rockies, who are 31.5 games back at 49-81. and 81. Uh, But that's all I got for the MLB, and of course, that means that is the end of the 4th and 24 podcast for this week. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Monday, September 4th, although... Uh, be prepared for that to maybe be a little bit of a late podcast because if I remember correctly, there is a game on Monday. Yes, there is. It's Clemson at Duke uh, in ACC play. So Clemson, less than a two-touchdown favorite. It'll be an interesting game. Um, won't talk too much about that, obviously, though. But that is it is the only game on Monday, but we're probably going to talk about it. Might start talking about college football before that game ends. Yeah, that sometimes is, is something we do. Uh, but you know, maybe save the best for last. We'll see what happens in that game. Uh, many other interesting games, though, going on over the weekend. So we will definitely, of course, be talking about college football on that podcast on September 4th, also Labor Day. Um, week one action this time, not week zero. And then also have a weekly review of MLB. I look back at my weekend predictions. But in the meantime, be sure to check out my additional content, including my MLB power rankings that are updated every Wednesday, um, my picks for next weekend's games that are posted on Thursday, and my predictions for the entire college football season. Uh, we will start releasing our top 25 polls soon, but as you know, our preseason polls were in that final preview podcast, and it's week zero, so we're not changing it based on that. But we will probably have one up on September 5th after those week one games are over. In the meantime, obviously, all that on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number four, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.